I uh, thought about today the kind of a world that we live in, and we have so much, so plentiful, and yet the lack of hope is just absolutely amazing in the world in which we live. Very, very, very hopeless. You find people who are struggling. You find people that don't see any reason to carry on. The suicide rate is going higher and higher. A lot of different things that people are going through. And it reminded me of uh, listening to uh, uh, Minnie Pearl one time. Remember her? And she was in the back of a limousine with Hank Williams. Okay? Now, this goes back before my time, so for most of us, you know, we might not relate, but some of you do. And he wrote the song, I Saw the Light, I Saw the Light, No More Darkness, No More Night, that type of thing. And a lot of churches have sung that and that type of thing. And she said that Hank Williams is in the back of the limo singing that song, Drunk as a Skunk. And then he just stopped and he looked and he said, There ain't no light, Minnie. There just ain't no light. Well, that was back how many decades ago? What do you think people are thinking now? They've tried church. They've tried religion. They've tried different codes and laws. And they've tried different fads and all of that kind of stuff. And yet, they're kind of like the... Well, you ever known anybody that was on a perpetual diet? And yet, they were still way overweight? Have you ever known anyone that tried everything that came along? Oh, I finally found the key. And you look at him and you go, well, you don't look like it. You're not very convincing. And I think there are a lot of people today that see a lot of religion and a lot of moral codes, a lot of legalism, a lot of those kind of things that we're staunch about, but yet they don't see a difference in our attitude. They don't see a difference in our outlook. They don't really see any power in our lives at all. I told you that that guy at Tuttle told me that the key to being a parent was show your kids a real God. Is that something that we have done? And have we shown not only the power of God and the standards of God, but also the forgiveness of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God uh, as well? Sometimes as conservatives, we can be uh, rather harsh and rather blunt about some things, as there are times that we should be, and then other times we need to be careful about what we say, and be careful even more maybe about how we say some things. Um, Maybe they don't really believe us. But nonetheless, we live in a world that is very, very hopeless. What are we supposed to do? So if you'll turn in your Bibles this morning, we're going to begin in 1 Thessalonians. So Go to 1 Thessalonians 1, and this is what I have entitled an epistle of hope. And it talks about hope in nearly every situation of life. And if we're going to be hope givers, we've got to first have an intake of hope. We've got to take it in through and from the Word of God, and so we want to do that. Now I want to introduce the book to you. And uh, so that you can understand where they are and what they are living in and why they are there. The Apostle Paul, of course, has been there. And he is writing to them now because he's concerned about them. He uh, came, uh, came to Philippi, you remember, and brought the gospel into Europe. That was a part of Greece, uh, not terribly far from uh, Thessalonica. 
And you remember his experience there, and so he had to leave town. So he comes into Thessalonica, and he only stays there about a month. A church is established, and the apostle is only there roughly a month. Now, when he has to leave, and he wonders how they're doing, and they couldn't get on the church's webpage or anything like that at all, he's worried about them. Like a father would be concerned about his children. That's the way Paul is about this church. He hadn't had time to properly teach them. He hadn't had properly time to pour his life into them. And uh, he's wondering how they're doing. That's the purpose of the letter. Now this letter is probably the first epistle that Paul wrote. Out of all of the writings in the New Testament, this is probably the first one that he uh, wrote. Now, the city of Thessalonica was a very important city. It still exists today. Uh, depending on who you talk to, it's called Salonica or Thessaloniki. And it lies near the uh, ancient site of Therma. And there were some hot springs there. That's where that name comes from. On the Thermaic Gulf at the northern reaches of the Aegean Sea. So you might want to look at that on a map sometime. Uh, Thessalonica is named after the stepsister of Alexander the Great, that great Greek ruler. And the city is the capital of Macedonia, which is named after Alexander the Great's father, Philip of Macedon, founded about 168 B.C. before Christ. And it enjoyed the status from Rome of being a free city, which means that it was ruled by its own citizens. And you see a hint of that in Acts 17, verse 6. Uh, and the Roman Empire, of course, granted them the ability to do that. And because it was located on the main east-west highway, the Via Ignatia, Thessalonica served uh, as the hub of political and commercial activity in uh, Macedonia and became known as the mother of all Macedonia. And the population in Paul's day reached 200,000. It's over a million today, but uh, 200,000 then, that was a big city in those days. And the letter was written, well, uh, scholars, when you get it uh, from them, they say 50 to 53 A.D. So I'm going to say 51. My word's as good as theirs. And uh, that's about the time frame that you find it. Now, Paul was uh, in Thessalonica about a month. And the reason we know that is because when it mentions his time in the book of Acts, it says he went into the synagogue and reasoned with them for three Sabbaths. And then that's when the imprisonment and all of that took place. So roughly, roughly a month, not a very long time at all. In uh, Acts chapter 17, I'll read to you out of that. It tells the story of Paul's time in Thessalonica. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and uh, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue, so it had more Jews in it than Philippi did, a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded 
and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the, uh, of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Mob justice, mob rule. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the others before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. They bonded out, in other words. And the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And Berea is the place where they went. And those people there, when Paul did the same thing he did in Philippi and the same thing he did in Thessalonica, I can say it, uh, he says that they were more noble because they actually, instead of just reacting, they searched the scriptures to see whether these things were so. So that's the story of Paul in Thessalonica. So he's concerned after he leaves and he sends Timothy back to check on them and to see what was going to happen. Timothy was half Gentile, you remember, and so he didn't cause the stir among uh, the Jews and among the Greeks that uh, Paul did, being a Jew. And so uh, Timothy comes and reports back in 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 6. Paul says that we were pleased to hear that you were still standing firm in the faith and that they were doing well. And so uh, that is... The background, of course, for writing uh, this particular letter. Paul is uh, feeling about this church like a proud father would about his children. And he wants them to do well and he wants to check on them. And when he hears from Timothy that they are doing well, then he is just ecstatic about all of that. And so the theme that we look for in this uh, series is going to be the theme of hope. Again, we live in a hopeless world and it only, the only way we're ever going to give hope is for us to be filled with hope. We don't want to sing about hope and then live a hopeless life. We don't want to talk about hope and live a hopeless life. We want to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in our Sunday school lesson this morning. Without making an uproar and all of that, we want to stand out for the glory of God. And one of the ways you do it in today's society is to be a person that is a hopeful or hope-filled, we might say, person. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, we're just going to look at chapter 1, verse 1 today. Read this one verse, and we're going to have an introduction to hope that comes out of uh, the, this book of 1 Thessalonians. And so, chapter 1, verse 1. You ready? Paul, Silvanus. That's an interesting word. In, in my generation, that makes me think of TV, a Sylvania TV. You ever have one of those? Well, Sylvanus is also called Silas. So it's not about TVs. It's that same companion that we read about, Paul, Sylvanus, or Silas. 
and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Beautiful, beautiful words there. That's what John MacArthur uses in uh, his broadcast, radio broadcast. Grace to you comes right out of that particular verse of Scripture. Uh, what are we supposed to learn and what are we supposed to get as we look about this? Well, if our theme is hope, I want you to think about the very first person that is mentioned in there. That is the Apostle Paul. Now, we could say a lot of good things about the Apostle Paul, obviously. What a hero. But I want to go back and I want you to think about Paul's history. And I think that in the identification of this and in God using Paul to not only establish the church there, but now to write to them, it reminds us there is hope. Hope for what? Oh, Paul was hostile against Christianity. Wanting to imprison and breathing threats against them. You remember that? He was hostile toward it. He was also someone that you find was uh, not only a hostile person, but also self-righteous. You remember he writes all the time when he gives his testimony, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I mean, he really worked hard to be righteous. He worked hard to be better than anybody else. You know anybody like that? They don't need Jesus. They're already good enough. They don't need grace and mercy because they've earned their salvation and their status before God. They'll take their chances with the big guy upstairs, they might say, because they think they're on equal status and they can stand before a holy God and that they can say, this is what I have done. Now I demand to be let into heaven. People like that are hard to witness to. They're hard to get them to even consider the claims of Christ. My grandfather was one of those kind of people. And he didn't see any need for that because he didn't really see himself as being a sinner. Oh, he probably would admit to it, but it's not that bad. And the good far outweighs the bad. I mean, after all, he even, after I was born, started going to church. And when God finally did save him, uh, nobody in the church knew that he wasn't a member. They just assumed that he was a member. He had never joined. He had never made a profession of faith. He had never been baptized. He did not have a Christian background. And he was a self-righteous person. He wasn't necessarily hostile like Paul was, but he was indeed self-righteous. And he was a very, very hard person to talk to. Can you imagine how the Apostle Paul was? Don't you know some of the people he persecuted tried to witness to him about Jesus, and that just infuriated him and hardened him even more. And when we think about Paul, we not only think about him being hostile, a persecutor, self-righteous, but I suppose if you ask anybody about Paul, they would probably say, well, I know God can save anybody, but it's not likely that, the, that Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, as he was known then, would be one that would be saved. He seemed very, very unlikely. In fact, after he did get saved, you remember God spoke to Ananias, a believer, and said, go and minister to Saul of Tarsus. And Ananias is like, whoa, Lord, hold on. We've heard about that guy. He didn't even believe it. That's how unlikely he was. And I want to ask you a question, church family. Have you given up on the hostile? Have you given up on the self-righteous? Have you given up 
on the unlikely? If so, you would have been one that would have been uh, giving up on none other and no one less than the Apostle Paul. Because when the Apostle Paul makes a statement in the Scripture, I am the chief of sinners, he's not just talking. He is really telling us that I'm at the top of the list in terms of the unlikely, hostile, and self-righteous. If there was anybody that you would look at and go, eh, that'll never happen, it was the Apostle Paul. And yet in Acts chapter 9, God had other plans. So when you think about these people, and you, would, you may be married to this person. You may have this person as a son or a daughter or a mom or a dad, right? This may be a boss. This may be a neighbor. And you say, well, I just give up. I don't know what to say. I can't get through to them. Well, you've got too many eyes in all of that because it's not about you getting through to them. It's not about you feeling like it or doing it. It's about God doing this work and God can invade their life and save them just like he did the Apostle Paul. And doubtless there are some of you here today that would kind of fit into this category and yet here you are. Here you are. Doubtless there were people in the church at Thessalonica that were a lot like the Apostle Paul. They were those Jews in that synagogue hardened against the gospel and against the truth. And yet here they are included in the church in Thessalonica. When Jesus said go into all the world, he didn't say except to the places where people are hard-hearted. He didn't say go to everybody except those who are self-righteous. He didn't say anything like that at all. He said we're to preach the gospel to every creature. But for some of us today, and maybe even as a church, we write off people and say, well, there's no hope for them. Read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and you might want to rethink that statement. Our God is the God of all hope because he is indeed a sovereign God. And one of the great things about knowing Bible doctrine is the salvation of souls is not left in our hands or even the hand of the sinner. We've got a weapon, and that is the fact that salvation is in the hand of a sovereign God and not even somebody as strong and hostile and hard-hearted and self-righteous as the Apostle Paul is can resist the work of God. Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you, you keep praying for that person who's like point number one. You keep witnessing to them every time you get an opportunity. You keep on believing God to save them until their dying breath because God is still a God who saves these kinds of people. And that's why he is listed there. What an encouragement it must be as people throughout the centuries and throughout the millennia have read these words and they think about the most unlikely person to be saved and that is the Apostle Paul. And yet here he is and if God can do it for Paul, he can do it for you. If God can do it for Paul, he can do it for that person that you're married to. If God can do it for Paul, he can do it to that friend and that neighbor that seems so unlikely. And that ought to fill our hearts with hope this morning because we know that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. So press on. And keep on, weary saint of God, because the victory is in Jesus and you are simply a soldier in the army of God. Keep on keeping on for the glory of God. Can you say amen to that? Now, number two, 
He goes to the next guy and he goes to Silas. What in the world do we think about when we think about Silas? Say, well, give us a history lesson on Silas. Don't really have one. Mentioned a few times in Scripture, he was in that Philippian jail. He was obviously a devout man and a faithful man. He was obviously a good friend. He was obviously somebody who was fearless, kind of like we saw in our Sunday school lesson this morning, and devoted and immovable, all of those kind of things. But other than that, don't know a whole lot. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Something kind of strikes a bell. It rings a bell in my mind. What is it that I need to look at about Silas? Well, where did he come from? Back in the book of Acts, in the very first part of the book, you'll find that the apostle Peter is the dominant figure. You know, the day of Pentecost and all of that. And then as time goes by, it shifts over to a guy named Paul. Well, Paul, we just talked about him. How did Paul get discipled? Well, you find that not only did Ananias have questions about Paul at his conversion, but you remember that Paul tried to go into the church there in Jerusalem after he was saved, and they didn't want him. They were afraid of him. And there was a guy named Barnabas. And Barnabas is the one that takes Paul and introduces him in the church. I want to tell you something. Everybody could use a Barnabas. Everybody could use a Barnabas. And whenever we have new people join the church, make up your mind that you're going to be a Barnabas to them. They may be a little bit intimidated. They may be a little bit afraid. They may be kind of, you know, we don't really know how things are done or who's who or where rooms are or anything like that. We use a lot of code words that we don't mean to use that only we understand. Be a Barnabas to somebody. Explain some things to somebody. Introduce them to people. Invite them to your Sunday school class. Invite them to fellowships. Make sure that they come. Make sure that they meet other people. Everybody needs a Barnabas. And the word Barnabas was actually a nickname for this guy because it means son of consolation or encouragement. He was such an encourager that that became his name. And he teams up with none other than the Apostle Paul, you remember. And as he is teaming up with the Apostle, we find that he starts working with Barnabas, and everybody loves Barnabas. And everybody is happy to be with Barnabas, and everybody is enthralled by him and encouraged by him. And uh, it's interesting that as time goes on, that things shift, and instead of it saying Barnabas and Saul, or Barnabas and Paul, then it shifts over and it starts saying Paul and Barnabas. And Barnabas was the kind of guy, he was so encouraging that he didn't fight to stay in charge. He didn't fight to be the leader. He could see that leadership and that God had his hand on Paul. And when it was time for Paul in maturity to step forward... Barnabas was happy to step behind, and it became Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. And it was such a pairing that you couldn't really think of one without thinking of the other. Until there came along a guy named John Mark, who was related to Barnabas. And this uh, snot-nosed kid went on a missionary journey, and then he got homesick, and he wanted to go home, and so he abandoned them. John Mark. 
Well, what happened later on? Well, Barnabas, again, it was his nature. What does he want to do? He goes, hey, Paul, let's give Mark, John Mark, a second chance. And Paul, being such a strong leader and being a task-oriented person, Paul said, no, Barnabas, our work's too important. We can't have somebody along that's going to be an anchor. We can't have somebody coming along that's going to just forsake us. We can't go through that again. And the Bible says in the book of Acts that there became a sharp contention between these two men and these two friends. Don't you know that was a painful time for both Barnabas and the Apostle Paul? Don't you know that they missed each other? Don't you know that that was a tough, tough, tough situation? So Barnabas leaves and goes his own way. And he continued being a missionary. And he took John Mark with him. And Paul went his way and he picks up Silas. And Silas takes the place of Barnabas. And so point number two reminds me then that there is hope even in the betrayals and the failures of others. Why does Paul have Silas? Because God was faithful to keep Paul going, to give him what he needed, to give him who he needed to keep on going in the face of what he would consider the betrayal and the abandonment and the failure of a Barnabas. You know anybody who's messed up? You know anybody who's failed? You ever had a sharp contention and disagreement with somebody else? Did you act like a Christian? And are you trusting God? Or do you fall in despair saying, what are we going to do? It may be because somebody died. What are we going to do without them? Well, do you think God would have taken them and then abandoned you? No, not at all. Sometimes it's because somebody moves. Maybe because they're in the military or a job situation, something like that. Oh, what do I do without my friend? What do I do without people that I care about? Well, do you think God is so uncaring and unfeeling that he's just looking for people to take out of your life so that he can destroy you and shipwreck you? Not on your life. And the very inclusion of this person, Silvanus or Silas, tells us that even though the Barnabases may go somewhere else. The Barnabases may fail, depending on <coughs> your perspective. The Barnabases may want to link up with somebody else because it's obvious Barnabas cared a little bit more about John Mark than he did about Paul, or he would have abandoned John Mark, but he didn't. He was willing to leave Paul. Must have been a very, very, very hurtful thing. And yet God was faithful to supply someone for Paul to be able to travel with. There's hope in spite of the betrayals and the failures of others. In other words, don't get hung up about all of those kind of things because if you do, you're going to become unusable to God. But if you'll stay faithful, keep walking with God, God will supply everything you need because the psalmist tells us, that he will withhold no good thing from those who walk uprightly. And that was even true for the Apostle Paul. You don't have a Barnabas, but here's a Silas. And a Silas will be a faithful friend, co-worker, and helper. Number three, it gives us a word of hope about the future. It mentions and Timothy. Who was Timothy? Timothy was a young guy that Paul led to the Lord in Lystra. Timothy is a guy who starts traveling with the Apostle Paul. And Timothy is the one who is going to outlive the Apostle Paul. 
The book of 1st and 2nd Timothy is written to Timothy by the Apostle Paul. 2nd Timothy in particular is written as Paul knows he's about to be executed and that the work is going to be passed on into Timothy's hands. And so the inclusion of Timothy here reminds us, no matter what our past may be like, no matter what the present may be like, there is always a future in the Lord. Our future is not in who the president might be. Our future is not in what we might think about the economy or about the world or the government we live in. Our future is always in the Lord. And God is investing in people. He's doing things in the lives of children that you and I can't see. He's doing things in the lives of teenagers and college students and young adults that we can't even see. Do they make mistakes? Of course they do, but so do you. Do they sometimes get it wrong? Of course they do, but you had to kind of feel your way along to get to where you are now. And sometimes we expect younger people to know everything we know when they don't have the experience. And sometimes they don't even have the knowledge that we had and we forget what it's like to be young. Can they be arrogant? Yeah. Can they think they know all the answers? Yeah. But I'm going to say it again. So did you. You had a time in your life when you thought your mom and dad were old-fashioned and they didn't understand new technologies and they didn't understand the new world and they were stuck back in the world of Herbert Hoover or Woodrow Wilson or Franklin Roosevelt or something like that. And now you find yourself maybe in the same shoes. You know, it's interesting, time goes by for all of us, and every generation has a time when they are young and fresh and vibrant and optimistic and pushing forward and pushing the envelope, and they want to change things. My mother told me one time that in the church she grew up in that Stamps Baxter music was controversial because it was new and it had a beat. Isn't that interesting? We don't think of it like that. I heard George Beverly Shea one time talk about that uh, when he, was, he grew up in Canada and somebody came into uh, their house, sat down at a piano and played a brand new song that had never heard it before. It had just freshly been written. You know what the title of it was? The Old Rugged Cross. Isn't it interesting? And people fought against those things back then. Why? That's the nature of the beast. The younger people are always wanting to bring things in new. They want to freshen things up. They want to kind of contemporize it. And old people want to hold on to the past. Why? Because they identify with it because that's when they were young. That's when they were effecting change. One of the men at First Baptist Church of Chelsea that had been a problem for so many pastors... I found out later on when I got to know him, he was the guy that was pushing for change back in the 60s. Now he had it and he wanted to hold on to it, right? Well, there's always something going on like that in tension between the generations. And I think that it's ordained of God because it tells the young people, don't run ahead too fast and don't be outlandish. Not everything is of God. Not everything is cool. Not everything is going to work. In fact, some things will be destructive. But I think it also tells the old when they pull against us, hey, don't get stuck in your rut. Don't get stuck in the past. There are new ways and fresh ways to tell the old, old story. Let's take advantage of them, and we ought to be working together. And so when we think about Jesus' statement, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
I think we could make a case that it kind of looked like the gates of hell were prevailing against it. The disciples scattered. Jesus is arrested. Jesus is tried. He's condemned to die like a criminal. There, that ought to take care of that. But it didn't. He rose from the dead. He establishes his church. And it has gone on and on and on and on. And when we look back at the past, we may look back to Christians that are our grandpa's age, When God looks back at the past, he goes all the way to eternity past where your name was written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. And when he looks ahead, he doesn't just look at us or the upcoming generation, not just our kids and grandkids. He sees it all the way through to when every people from every tribe and tongue are gathered before the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ at that great reunion in heaven when the bride comes home and there is a marriage supper of the lamb he sees the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning and seeing somebody like timothy in this it reminds us of our responsibility to encourage the young to help the young to walk alongside the young to teach and to train the young and to understand that there's going to come a day when we are going to pass the baton on to someone else oh what are we going to do this young generation they just don't have it that's what your parents said about you and that's what their parents said about them and it's always kind of been that way but our hope is not in the young generation and our hope's not in the old generation either our hope is in the unchanging god jesus christ the same yesterday today and forever, the Bible says. So God's got his eye on the future. You should too. Think about it. You're not done until God's done. Number four, it also tells us about the security of believers. To the church. Well, not much of a church. And they don't know a whole lot. And they didn't really have the, you know, Ephesus had three years with the Apostle Paul. But Thessalonica got, you know, four weeks approximately So is our hope in Paul? It better not be. To the church of the Thessalonians, where? Not in Paul, but in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a church where they were saved, and God takes the people that he saves, and he secures the people he saves, because they're not just in Greece, They're not just in Macedonia. They're not just in the Roman Empire. They are in the eternal. They are in Christ. And a lot of things may change in life for you. The culture changes. You don't understand the music any longer. You don't know uh, much about technology. You don't really get what's going on in politics. But there's one thing that's true. You are in Christ and He never changes. You may have a world that changes around you. Friends may change. Lifestyle may change. The economy may change. The government may start persecuting us. Who knows? COVID treatment certainly changes about every week. They contradict themselves on things, right? What is stable? What stands true? And that is Jesus Christ. And this church survived... This church is able to move on because it is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is true of us today. My hope is built on nothing less than what? Jesus' blood 
and righteousness. I mean, who can defeat our Lord? If Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could say before an angry, hostile king, Nebuchadnezzar, our God is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we won't bow down to your idols. How much more can we say that? We've got a whole lot more theology than they had. We've got a whole lot more Bible than they have. And we've even had the Messiah come and to do his work. We should be the most hopeful people because our security is not in this world, but in an unchanging God. And he's given us his word. Rest in that. That's where the Thessalonians were. So there's hope in the security that the church has in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the gates of hell won't prevail against the church because we're in Christ and the demons of hell cannot get to Jesus. We're secure. And number five, there is hope here about sinners. Unworthy and ungodly people. Where do I get that? Grace to you and peace. And where does that come from? Oh, not from the church. Not from our dogmas, not from our doctrine, not from our rituals. Grace to you and peace from God. How did the Thessalonian believers even get to the point of wanting peace from God and grace from God? Because they came to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ will give grace, mercy, and peace and forgiveness to any sinner who comes to him. And let's not forget, I was reading a book the other day, and it was a book about uh, the effectiveness of small churches. And uh, the guy made a statement that I thought was kind of hilarious. He goes, remember, every time you look at a mega church, it once was a small church. Let me tell you something else. Every time you look at a sinner out there, every time you look at somebody who is lost, ungodly, bound for hell... That's where you were. That's where you were found. Ephesians 2. Dead. Right? In trespasses and sins. But today, it can be said to us, grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, that's a word of hope for believers. Of course it is. But it also is a reminder for every person that trusts Christ as their Savior and Lord who hadn't been saved yet, there's hope for them. There's hope when you witness. There's hope when you pray. There's hope when you give to missions. There's hope when you do outreach. There's hope when you hand out a tract. There's hope when you say something about Jesus to somebody. Why? Because God our Father is still giving out grace and He is still giving out mercy and He is still giving out peace based upon what the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us. And so we find that we have hope in this book. It tells us in the gospel. There's hope in relationships. We'll talk about that later on. There's hope in sanctification. You're not stuck where you are. There's a future and a hope for you in the Lord. There's also hope in the Lord's return. He is coming back. And there is hope in serving others, no matter how frustrating it might sometimes be. So I'm going to ask you to do something as we conclude the service. I'm going to ask for you, all of our church members and any guests, you're free to join us. But I'm going to ask you to stand and to come to the altar. And we're going to pray today that God would use us and use our church to take His hope to a lost 
dying and hopeless world for the glory of God. But in order to do that, he's got to infuse us with hope. That's what we're going to ask for today. So will you come join me here at the altar? Because this church at Thessalonica became such an effective church. I don't know their size. That doesn't really matter. But they were effective. And they were an echo chamber of the gospel. God is still doing that today. And God will do it through people like you and like me for His glory. We come to pray for the sick. Pray for Isaac that he'll recover from COVID. Pray for Brother Bob that he'll get the treatments he needs so he can be back with us. I understand Randy Bullock tested positive for COVID. We'll pray for him. Got other people fighting other things. Been able to do this last week, some counseling with some people. And uh, to try to give them hope to carry on and to hang on and to persevere in some things. And so we pray for one another because we all face battles, don't we? And we all face trials and we all face storms. But God is a God of all hope. And we are in Him. Can we pray? Oh God of all hope. God of ages past. The God of today. And the God of years to come. The God who has delivered us. The God who does deliver us. And the God who will deliver us. The God who came and, fa and found us when we were dead in trespasses and sins. We didn't understand. We weren't seeking after you, but oh, you sought after us. And came to us and delivered us from the kingdom of darkness. And now you have placed us in the kingdom of life and light. And we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You're walking with us and you give us your holy, precious, inerrant, infallible, eternal, all-sufficient word to guide us through the storms and the trials and the warfare of this life. And the God who one day is going to call us home, either individually through death or to call us all out collectively as you come back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we have a future and a hope in Jesus Christ. And so, so now, Lord, in spite of what we feel, what we think, what's going on around us, fill us with hope today. And fill us with hope not only that we might feel better. We would like that, of course. Lord, our main thing is we want to be hope givers. Whether we're praying for the sick, whether we're visiting a person, whether we are making a phone call, whether we are telling somebody about Jesus, whether we're taking a meal to someone, whatever it might be. May it always be infused and dripping with hope because it's coming out of the soul that you have touched and the spirit that you have filled with hope so that it touches other people. It splashes onto them. Oh, Father, I wish Christian hope was as contagious as COVID is. And maybe it is and we just don't see it. May we be spreaders of hope. And may this church be a super spreader of Christian hope in Jesus Christ. And so we pray this, Lord, that you might be glorified, that you might calm our fears, that you might heal us, that you might strengthen us, that you might provide for us, and that you might teach us to keep our eyes upon you. 
And we pray all of this because we believe it to be in line with your word. And we believe you to be true and powerful. And we need you desperately. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And if you agree with that, would you say an amen? Amen. 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 Lord bless you.